HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. There's this coffee shop near my apartment that I used to always go to called Outro Coffee. And it has this outdoor patio in the back and they'd always play calming guitar music or the latest pop or something. And I'd sit in there with my laptop and study for hours. But now my coffee shops tend to sound like... It's, it's a little depressing. <laughs> There's just something about going into a cafe and ordering a delicious drink, maybe a pastry, that just hits different. Yeah, sure, cafes are still open and I can go inside and order a drink, but unless I'm willing to brave the cold and corona, there's a whole aspect to coffee shops that's just disappeared. The atmosphere. That sweet, sweet 70 decibel sound level that's just loud enough to block out daydreams, but not loud enough so that it distracts you. The mix of cups and plates clinking, hot milk steaming, strangers talking, the smell of fresh coffee grounds. God, I miss sitting in coffee shops so much. I miss packing all of my things into a backpack and sitting down at a tiny round table. I miss people watching and imagining what everyone else is working on. Somehow getting distracted at a cafe always feels so much more productive than getting distracted at home. Now that vaccines are rolling out, there finally seems to be a light at the end of this dark, dark tunnel. In the meantime, let this be a message to all the cafes out there. You are so dearly missed. That was Alicia Chan lamenting the temporary loss of one of her favorite pastimes. From coffee shops to cocktail bars, the world of beverages has been turned upside down by the pandemic. You can't always drink what you want or where you want. But even before COVID-19, transformations in the production line, farming practices, and workplace inclusivity have affected what we drink. In this episode, we are splashing into the world of beverages from the drinks we sip on to the places we imbibe. More specifically, we study the ways that access, history, legislation, and simple circumstance may limit the beverages we can consume. We'll explore how to make the most of the ingredients lying around even the dustiest of liquor cabinets. Then we'll hear from a North Carolina state representative and two bar owners about the state of to-go cocktails. 
we'll learn about the future of the American craft cider industry and its potential to diversify the labor force. And lastly, we'll look into an increasingly popular caffeinated drink whose history tells a story of cultural resilience. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. First up, Caroline Fox introduces us to John DeBerry, author of the cocktail book, Drink What You Want. Centered around the idea that anybody can make great drinks, the book is full of recipes to help you discover exactly what you like. With a focus on accessibility, John also offers advice for situations when your options are limited, when you may think you can't drink what you want. My name is John DeBerry. I am the author of a cocktail book, Drink What You Want. I am the creator of a line of non-alcoholic drinks called Proto, and I am the co-founder and board president of the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. I was motivated to write this book because I spent almost 10 years working in the bar industry, and something that I always really valued was the ability to make in a complex topic that was sort of nerdy and, and geeky and insidery, really accessible to someone who had no background in in drinks or cocktails or spirits. Uh, so distilling, you know, no pun intended, everything down to really very accessible, uh, manageable kind of terms was always something that I, I thought was like the true mark of success in terms of your ability to think about something. So I wanted the book to read as like a enjoyable book that not only taught you how to make drinks, but sort of was a little bit autobiographical and, and made you laugh and kind of get under the hood about why drinks taste good so that you're able to kind of make these decisions for yourself. And I think something in the book that I really had from, from day one was this idea of a flowchart for cocktails and sort of walking someone through kind of how I think about cocktails, like if I'm developing a recipe for a menu or if I'm at somewhere and I'm making drinks, like how I sort of determine what I'm able to do based on my circumstances. And a lot of times you can do a lot with very little. And so this flowchart that I have, it's in a chapter called Feeling Desperate, and it's all about you know, cocktails that you make in suboptimal situations. And in the flowchart, it's sort of the gag is that you're at your in-law's house and they have like a very sparse liquor cabinet and how to do a little bit of an inventory and how to determine, you know, based on a few choices, like maybe you can do a drink like, you know, honeysuckle, which is basically just like a daiquiri with honey instead of instead of a simple syrup. And you can do it with any spirit, really. You can also make drinks like soured cocktails, like from liqueurs, like a Midori sour and uh, amaretto sour, which are two of my favorite drinks. And they're actually just three ingredient drinks and they're really easy to put together. And usually people have, you know, a half full bottle of, uh, of amaretto lying around more readily than maybe, you know, uh, like a gin or something or vermouth. John may be an expert in crafting cocktails for the most dire situations, but he also has experience not drinking at all. Every year, John challenges himself to give up one thing. In the past, he's given up buying new clothes in hopes of rediscovering his closet and examining necessity. Another year, he chose not to read any new books and instead take a deeper dive into his classics. 
For 2020, as a true test of discipline, John decided to give up alcohol. I picked up one thing from growing up around Catholic people, and that's Lent and Advent. And I always just sort of was appealed the idea of giving something up as a way of reflecting on whatever it is. And I usually gave up candy when I was a kid. Um, and for alcohol, I thought it would be an interesting experience to go for a whole year and see what all the rituals of life were like without alcohol. And I frequently do dry months because I, I really enjoy like taking breaks from from alcohol, especially someone who lives in, in, in the industry. And also I was launching my line of non-alcoholic drinks. And so it felt very appropriate to sort of live in the mindset of, of someone who's not drinking and see what culinary experiences are like but I definitely love the challenge of creating non-alcoholic drinks uh, because it's a technical challenge. and it's, it's an accessibility thing for me, too, where a lot of times people who didn't drink were left out of the fun, you know, at places where I worked or whatever. And I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero-proof, non-alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. Starting January 1st, John welcomed alcohol back into his life but said goodbye to animal products pledging to go vegan as his 2021 challenge. If you're interested in learning more about John's work, check out the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, his non-alcoholic drink line, and his book, Drink What You Want. For me, one of the so-called silver linings of COVID has been learning to cook dishes that I previously only ate at restaurants. And the same goes for cocktails. My home bar is better stocked so I can create drinks that I miss from the days of going to bars. Also, I frequently use John DeBerry's book for inspiration. Even so, I am no professional. I really miss having drinks made for me, with fancy ice and just-right garnishes. And I'm in North Carolina, where liquor laws are some of the tightest in the country. While New York sought to go cocktails early in the pandemic, I was surprised back in January to find a bar offering them in my neighborhood. Turns out, it was also a surprise to bar owners in December 2020 when they suddenly got the green light to sell to-go cocktails. I am Katie Ryder. I co-own The Golden Pineapple. Uh, We are in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm Donnie Pratt. I'm the other owner of The Golden Pineapple. The Golden Pineapple opened in May of 2019 and quickly became a neighborhood favorite and hang out for the hospitality community in West Asheville. They have been closed for indoor service since March 2020 due to COVID. You know, we did offer wine and uh, beer to go as much as we could when we were closed. Um, It didn't really make sense in the long term just because we weren't really able to sell cocktails at the time. After they were mandated to close indoor dining, bars needed either legislation or an executive order to legally sell to-go cocktails. States like New York and Chicago did this within a matter of days. So why did North Carolina take nine months? Well, 2020 was not a great year to get legislation passed in North Carolina because it was a short session year. To explain what that means, here is North Carolina State Representative Tim Moffitt, chairman of the House Committee on Alcoholic Beverage Control. So typically, adjournments for the short session take place around July or August of that year. And at that point, the the legislature really doesn't exist except in emergency situations. And during this absence is when the Restaurant and Lodging Association negotiated a reprieve with Governor Cooper to one of the executive orders, 
which would allow them to serve cocktails to go. For bars, it's better late than never. But there is a catch. This executive order only allows bars to sell one cocktail per person per day. That doesn't translate to a very high check average. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. The Golden Pineapple's clever solution to this restriction is that they sell mixers, wine, beer, merch, and even fancy ice, so guests can put together a larger order to stock their home bars. I wondered if Katie and Donnie thought about keeping to-go cocktails as a long-term addition to their business. I think that would be a great extra revenue source that that we didn't have before. No one had before. Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, if if there's this huge uptick of DUIs or any any of the negative effects of alcohol, then that should be addressed. I also posed this question to Representative Moffat, and he was thinking along the same lines as Donnie. That's something that would have to be proposed. It would have to work its way through the committee process. Uh, All the stakeholders would need to participate in that. So that would include those that are supportive of such a thing continuing, as well as those that would not like to see it continue. It's, It's the way laws are made. As we enter a new phase of the pandemic, there's a proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. According to both Representative Moffitt and the Golden Pineapple team, ultimately, keeping to-go cocktails is less of a priority than reopening for indoor dining. I'm excited for people to come into this space, and I think people are going to be probably very, very ready to come in, sit at a bar, and have a bartender converse with you while they make you a cocktail. The North Carolina General Assembly is working to help make sure bars can open when the time is right. Some of the actions being taken by the General Assembly right now is to provide relief regarding those fees to those affected businesses. The fees he's talking about are annual liquor license fees that businesses pay every spring. Last year, a lot of businesses paid them and then were not able to operate at full capacity for the whole year. I mean, I understand that. I don't I don't think when, when we were asked to pay our full fee that anyone thought that this He's would gonna, go on this long. Right. So Currently on the governor's desk is a, is a bill, H4, or House Bill 4, that allows the affected businesses that have been either closed or had such severe restrictions on how they operate imposed upon them to either operate without having to pay for those permits, so their permits would be active, or uh, they could seek a refund because the way that their business model is set up, they're unable to open at all. Passage of this bill would go a long way to helping businesses get back on their feet in 2021. Yeah, that would be incredible. Yeah, I, that would that would help so many people that we know. We're, we're in a very good situation, but we know a lot of business owners that are not or have already closed. So, you know, any little thing helps. <laughs> I, for one, am looking forward to pulling up a seat at the Golden Pineapple when it's safe to do so. Until then, I'll be supplementing my home bar with their cocktails, mixers, and very fancy ice. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. 
The Great Grow Along will feature 40 plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. Are you longing for a trip to Mexico? Do you want to taste mezcal straight out of a wood-fired clay pot still at a palenque in Puebla? Well, we can't help you with that, but we can offer the next best thing, agave road trip in a box. This set of 10 samples of rare heritage agave spirits will transport your heart with the warmth of liquid Mexico. Get your set at agavefestival.org and then join agave road trip podcast co-host Chava and me, Lou, for an online tasting agavefestival.org is the break you've been looking for, or as close as you're going to get. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Craft cider is making quite the comeback in the U.S. since its decline in popularity post-prohibition. But as the cider industry grows, will it mirror its counterparts in the beer and wine industries? Despite both beer and wine having a diverse catalog of drinks to choose from, it's hard to say the same about the labor behind it. But perhaps a more nascent drink like cider has the potential to break that trend. In Episode 6 of the HRN show Hardcore, guest Nicole Jackson-Beckham dives deep into the future of American craft cider. The cider industry is is really well positioned to learn from, you know, the last 20, 30 years of craft beer. Craft beer had to kind of work against the kind of preconceptions of beer that were erected like throughout the 20th century. You know, craft beer had to kind of work really hard to say, okay, we're not that in terms of like big industrial light lager. And for decades, big industrial light lager poured millions of dollars into advertising that made beer into a, a beverage specifically for certain types of men. You know, some of us remember like the Swedish bikini team ads. That wasn't intended to appeal to women. I'm not sure that cider has quite as much of a, um, you know, back history to compete against. Otherwise known as Dr. J., Nicole is an academic and home brewer who conducts research studies on the beer industry. As the first diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association, she sees a huge opportunity for the craft cider industry to incorporate inclusion. There's a couple things that I hope to see in the next five, 10 years that will, for me, be um, harbingers of like positive things in terms of equity and inclusion and cider. One, which is the kind of placemaking that cider can do with regard to its agricultural tie-in. You know, that's a really long and interesting supply chain that I think can really, really be powerful in terms of um, thinking about the ways agricultural labor in the U.S. um, involves the work uh, and the input and hopefully um, the decision-making and empowerment of lots of different types of people. 
you know, I hear a lot of crafters say things like, I would love to hire anybody who's great, but only certain people apply. And this is not just craft beer, right? This is cider, this is wine, this is spirits. Craft beverage has a kind of dizzying array of possible career paths, whether you are in finance or in communications or a microbiologist or a farmer or you know, in sales, or you're a technical brewer or an engineer, all of these different pathways have a connection to craft beverage. And I think we haven't done a very good job letting lots of different people know that they can pursue a really rewarding career. And I think the lack of representation in people who work in the industry has really affected who can see themselves in a brand and who feels comfortable um, as a consumer in the spaces defined by craft beverage. Although cider doesn't have the same white misogynist marketing track record as beer, it has its own historical inequities to combat, from land justice to labor and reparations. But it's not too late for this newly booming industry to deviate from that history. To learn about the past and future of American Cider, check out all six episodes of Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. For our last story, Matan Dubnikov digs into the history of America's forgotten drink and the company reviving it as a force for good. Rewind Edible History 8,000 Years Drop a pin on what is today the southeastern United States, and you won't find much soul food or sweet tea. The land between the Gulf Coast and the Mid-Atlantic was occupied by hundreds of indigenous tribes, each with distinct cultural practices and unique recipes tailored to ingredients sourced from the wilderness. However, one beverage surpassed their cultural borders and tethered the tribes together through the millennia. Its boiled leaves strengthened warriors before battle, and its black froth intoxicated ceremonial mystics. Fast forward to the 16th century, and the first European traders brought the powerful elixir back across the ocean to please aristocratic appetites. So what exactly is this mystery drink, and how can you get yourself a taste? Enter the Yaupon brothers. Yaupon really just stands out you know, above the crowd because it is um, indigenous to the southeast portion of the United States. So it grows pretty much all throughout the Gulf Coastal Plain. Um, and it is the only plant species in the United States that is naturally caffeinated. It has this really elaborate history, mostly stemming from indigenous people. And they've consumed it in various forms and for lots of different reasons for at least 8,000 years probably longer than that. And when you contrast that to tea, which originated in China, so tea is the Camellia sinensis plant, um, that's been consumed by humans for only about 4,400 years. So Yopan is literally twice as ancient as tea. It's been around twice as long. And uh, we just sort of forgot about it, swept it into the dustbin of history. Uh, so a big part of what we do at Yopan Brothers is we try to bring it back. That's Brian White. He's the CEO of the Yaupon Brothers American Tea Company, the first company to resurrect the indigenous beverage in over four decades. Yaupon provides more caffeine per cup than black tea and less than black coffee, but caffeine isn't what gives Yaupon its super beverage status. 
It's an antioxidant superfood, and unlike tea, never feels bitter on your taste buds. A big difference between yopon and tea, for example, is that yopon has a lot less tannin than tea does. So that means it's not bitter. You know, it doesn't have that astringent characteristic that you find in tea. Uh, yopon also has a lot of saponin, which is a, an antioxidant compound that makes things frothy. So you can actually, you know, make it a foamy drink, which is what a lot of indigenous people did. They they kind of agitated it and created this foamy head on top, which is really fun. You know, it has tons of antioxidants, one of the most potent antioxidant containing foods in the world. Um, and then it has three different types of alkaloids, methylxanthine alkaloids, which is what caffeine is. It also has theobromine, which is the pleasure molecule in chocolate. And then it also has another one called theophylline. So these are all cortical stimulants that help you, you know, get energized. But the real remarkable thing about Yopon is that you don't get jittery from it. You know, it's not like a, a hardcore buzz like you get from coffee. It's a very mellow, a gentle, so, sort of no crash, no jitter um, energy boost. And so... I think it's just a phenomenal tea. It's just unbelievable to me that it's never taken off until now. So if Yaopan is such a delicious and healthy beverage, why hasn't it dominated our grocery store shelves? We can trace the answer to a simple change in European palates and the extinction of indigenous culture at the hands of colonialism. Yopon is very closely intertwined with indigenous cultures, especially in the Southeast United States. And they pretty much were wiped out. You know, they were either murdered or uh, extirpated from the landscape and removed. And a lot of their culture did not survive. And they didn't have a written language. So nobody was writing down these things except for the uh, oppressors. And um, I say Yopan went away as a, as a consequence of erasure. People did know about Yopan, you know, for many hundreds of years. It was even popular uh, with white people or anybody. They, they were drinking it, they were exporting it to Europe. But I think over time, it just became sort of day class day. You know, people thought of it as a peasant drink or something for poor people. It wasn't fashionable. For nearly 500 years, Yaopan faded from ingredient lists and history books across the globe. Tea from Africa, India, and China satiated the appetites of caffeine-thirsty Europeans and became the mainstay drink of high society. Meanwhile, in the United States, thousands of indigenous people were driven far from their homes in the South to cold, windswept places where Yaopan doesn't grow, isolating a native beverage from its native culture. But Yaopan did not die. The evergreen tree grows wild in coastal plains from Virginia to Texas, and often finds itself as an ornamental plant in many gardens. It wasn't until a young Brian White followed his curiosity that Yaopan tea sprouted its roots once more. My brother was basically a kid, and I just sort of dragged him into the woods and said, look at this cool tree because I'm a plant nerd, you know, and I really like this Yaopan trees that were growing right across the street from our house. And um, I read about the trees, and I, I stumbled upon this book that's called The Black Drink. And I was just, you know, reading through this book, just totally appalled. You know, that, oh my God, this is a caffeinated plant. It was a tea for thousands of years. It was a, it was used in, as a sacrament. You know, it was like a, a part of this really elaborate ritual. Um, and it was also consumed on a regular basis, like 
any coffee and tea we would drink today. And it was just sitting there, you know, totally forgotten about. And I just thought, well, we have to do it, you know, and we made a lot of mistakes. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we didn't know anything about business or food or food production or anything. Uh, and so it was really just a, a learn by doing sort of thing. And um, over many, many years now, we've just gotten very good at it. And um, we've developed a, a really deep understanding of the plants and a very strong respect for it, too. Yalpon Brothers began reviving the beverage in 2012 through a mixture of wild sourcing, organic farming practices, and the promotion of native tradition. The company employs from some of the poorest communities in the nation, and Brian works closely with influential figures like Sean Sherman, the sous chef, to support indigenous food systems across the country. You know, Yopan's association, you know, through indigenous cultures, it was never negative. It was always a powerful, purifying, cleansing, um, sort of restorative thing for them. And that's what it is for everyone, you know, even today. This plant's been around for millions of years. And uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And it's not just about Yopan Brothers, it's about Yopan. I mean, this is about an industry that we're trying to create um, that can really lift up a lot of people. You can create economic opportunities and you can also create value, create um, things that don't hurt our environment, that don't um, keep people in poverty. That's what I want. That's what I think it can be. Yopan tells an authentic tale of American history. It bore witness to hundreds of indigenous cultures shattered under the colonial yoke, yet found itself rediscovered as a beacon of native heritage and a force for good. To learn more about Yaopan and where to get some, visit yaoponbrothers.com and be sure to check the links in the show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Alicia Chan, Caroline Fox, Matan Dubnikov, and Karina Andriatos. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hello, you can write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. 